Good morning again, friends. I invite you to take out your Bible or take one from the pew rack in front of you and turn with me to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 2. You'll find this on page 201 if you do have one of our our pew Bibles there. Today we start a seven-week series in the book of Judges. There are six major judges called major simply because of the amount of text that is devoted to them. We're going to spend a week on each of those, but today we're going to begin with an introduction to the series. And to do that, we'll read from Judges chapter 2. I'll start in verse 6 and read through to the end of verse 15. So let's give our attention to this section of God's Word. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. This is the word of the Lord. As we once again prepare our hearts to hear from him and his word, let's stand together and sing this song as a prayer. Be thou my vision. Would we see him? pray together. Father, the words we have sung are indeed the prayer of our hearts, that you would be our vision, that we would behold you in these pages, and that it would do us good. Father, be with us. Bless your children as you love to do. We pray in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Please have a seat. I wonder how familiar you are with the book of Judges. It contains epic battles. It contains some disgusting deeds. It certainly contains a lot of of shocking violence. It can be a difficult book to read. And, And sometimes an even harder book to apply to our lives. Despicable people who do deplorable things. It seems primitive, it's, it's puzzling. In a word, it's just a little weird. Now, I don't know, but you might be thinking, Pastor, that's not really what I came for this morning. You know, I didn't come to church looking for some weird. I came to church hoping that I'd, you know, be with, sure, uh, close friends, brothers, sisters, be with the Lord and, and worship Him, receive some encouragement, perhaps receive some hope, some practical wisdom for life. Uh, should you come back next week? My answer is yes. 
Absolutely, most assuredly, ye verily, yes, you ought to come back next week. Four reasons why. Four reasons why we should study the book of Judges together. Ready to dive in? Let's go. Number one, the first reason we should study the book of Judges is this, that we have a conviction as a church, a conviction that is near and dear to us, and not just to us, but to many in the wider church as well, that all the Bible, all the Bible, the entire Bible is, is useful. That everything from Genesis in the beginning all the way to Revelation, new heavens, new earth, and everything in between is is important and helpful to us. Now, this isn't a conviction that we just sort of, you know, came up with. This is a conviction that we get in the scriptures themselves. Most famously, probably, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where we read, all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture, not some of scripture, not just the famous passages, not just the mountaintops, but all of scripture is, is God-breathed. Now this phrase, God-breathed, is, is really interesting. We often think of it in terms of the Bible being inspired, but really it's this idea that the Bible is, is expired. What's the difference between those two things? Well, inspired might imply that, that God took a human book and then you know, sprinkled some magic fairy god dust on it, and it became a very inspirational book. That's not what happened in the Bible. It says the Bible is, is expired, meaning it comes ex out of the mouth of God. The scripture is God breathed. That is literally his word to us. Yes, men wrote it down, but they did so as they were carried along by the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter tells us in his epistle. That this book isn't any ordinary book. That is, it is God's word. And because of that, we read in 2 Timothy, it, it's profitable. It's useful. It's helpful to us for teaching and reproof and correction and, and training in righteousness. So that what? The end of the verse says. So that the person of God may be complete. You may be complete. You may lack nothing. But be equipped for every good work. Have everything you need to navigate this life. We believe in this book. And we believe every book within this book. And every chapter within those books and every verse within those chapters. It kind of reminds me of a a funny conversation I had uh, with a a young woman after harvest when I led our our young adult ministry one night. She came up to me and she said, I'm really enjoying being here because you guys, you take the Bible seriously, but you're not one of these crazy churches that believes every word. Okay? (laughs) I'm thinking, awkward conversation. (laughs) ahead. And I was like, well, I have bad news. We are one of those crazy churches that believes every single word, every single syllable, every single letter in this book has come to us from the Lord. Now, of course, quick clarification. We don't necessarily believe every crazy interpretation that has been based on the word. People in history and today have said all sorts of crazy things and justified their views by referring to the Bible. So we don't endorse everyone's view just because they say it came from the Bible. But rightly understood, we believe and submit to every single syllable of this book. And so as a church, we want to live in a way that's consistent with those convictions. You understand what we're saying? It's not that we have these theological convictions and we just put them up on the shelf and then when someone asks, oh, what do you think about the Bible? We, we, we kind of pull that off the library and, and, and tell them. 
No, we want these convictions to, to shape who we are as followers of Jesus. To live in a way that's, that's consistent with them. And this is so important because we know when it comes to the Bible that all of us, all of us, have a tendency to self-edit a little bit. There'll be parts of the Bible we know really well and parts that we just barely even touch. Parts that we're familiar with and that are comforting and encouraging to us. And other parts that we keep at arm's length. I've heard it described, and I quite like it. It's like when you, um, <clears throat> on a Friday evening, okay, it's been a long week. You finally put the kids to bed and throw yourself down on the couch. And one of you says, oh, let's watch a movie together. And you think, great, let's watch a movie. And so you start to flick through the options, okay? Maybe you're on Netflix or on demand or wherever you are. And you're, you're flicking through the options, and then you see this drama that gives great insight, apparently, into the Civil War, Okay? And then you see this Oscar-nominated movie that deals with issues of faith and doubt. And then you see this mindless romantic comedy. (laughs) Which one do you pick? Right? Nine times out of ten, you're hanging out with Hugh Grant. Okay? It's just the way life goes. Okay? Now, of course, we all wish on Saturday morning to be able to say, yes, I watched this great movie about the Civil War. Hmm." Um, But the reality is, in the tiredness of the moment, we tend more often than not to go for the easier option. And look, there's nothing wrong with that. The point of this illustration is uh, Hugh Grant's a good guy, I'm sure, right? Um, The point is, we shouldn't do that with the Bible. It's okay to watch movies that way. It's not okay to read the Bible that way. Whereby we just expose ourselves to the bits that we find easy, the bits we find comforting, the bits that are nice. No, the Bible is full and it's rich and every single sentence and syllable is helpful to us. And so we're going to study it. We're going to study it. We make a pattern. We have a routine of this time of year, every year, diving into one of these Old Testament narratives to glean the goodness the Lord has for us. Why study number one? The entire Bible is helpful. Number two, we're going to study this book because there's a very real sense in which our day, the day in which we live, our culture, our society, is it's eerily similar to their day, to their culture, to their society. Now, I mean, you might say, you know, how is that possible? Okay? The book of Judges covers that time in history from right after Joshua's death until the beginning of the monarchy. That's some 3,000 years ago. Three millennia have, been, have passed since between then and now. How can this book be so applicable? How is our day like their day? Well, lots of ways. Let me give you just two quick examples. First of all, the day of the judges was written during a time of great religious pluralism. The society of Canaan, the land God had promised to give his people and where the people are now living was intermingled with with many nations. And there was a a mixture of believing people and and non-believing people. It was a time when God's people faced that daily choice between loving the God that they had followed or instead following the spirit and preferences of the day in which they lived. Now, you don't need me to tell you that we live in a day of competing beliefs, that we live in a day like that day. You don't need me to tell you because you know in your, in your office, in your class, in your neighborhood, how many different beliefs, how many different philosophies, how many different faiths, or, or no faith perhaps, exists within our communities. And you also don't need me to tell you how, how we are tempted in this pluralistic society of our own to compromise our own beliefs. 
I, when you speak to someone of other faith, it can be tempting to step back a little bit from some of those harder edges of Christianity. Some of those exclusive truth claims that can just feel like a little too strong, maybe. We know what it's like to live in a pluralistic age, and we know some of the temptations that come with it, so judges can help us. The second way in which our time is eerily like their time is that their day was, had not only this religious pluralism, but with that, for God's people, a season of great spiritual decline. And no surprise, perhaps, that religious pluralism and spiritual decline go hand in hand. If this was a time when God's people daily faced the choice between looking to God as their Lord or following the spirit and preferences of their age, it's also a time in history where God's people failed spectacularly when it comes to this decision. They failed spectacularly despite their covenant promises, despite their promised faithfulness. They're constantly turning from knowing, loving, and obeying God. Do you remember the summary statement of this book is... Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Isn't that a great slogan for today? That would be quite a popular slogan too. Everyone, do what's right in your own eyes. In our postmodern relativistic age, that is the spirit of the day. You can believe what you believe, I'm going to believe what I'm going to believe. Make make sure our beliefs don't impinge upon each other and let's all just get along. Let's all just do what seems right in our own eyes. There's nothing new under the sun. It may have been three millennia ago. The surface of life may look quite different, but the fundamental human issues remain the same. Do you think God is, uh, I don't know, I think we give ourselves too much credit sometimes. I think God looks at our culture and thinks, man, the sins they're struggling with, I did not see those coming. You know? <laughs> Addendum to the Bible, you know? No, that's not the way it is. The things we struggle with are the things we have always struggled with. And so we need the book of Judges. And the entire Bible is useful. And our day is eerily like their day. Third reason why this study is going to be so helpful, and if you'll just lean over and step on your own toes a little bit for this one, we need to study the book of Judges because the book of Judges says some, some hard things that, that we need to hear. The book of Judges has some hard truths that it's good for us to hear. And this is a good thing, right? If, if you... If you're a Christian this morning, if you believe in the scriptures and if you believe in God and have faith in Jesus, um, we expect the Bible to challenge us. We expect the Bible, if this really is God's word, to, to call us out and to confront us and even to offend us. Why? What's the alternative? That It just so happens that God agrees with you on everything, right? I don't like the implications of that view, Okay. Of course we expect the Bible to challenge us. And so, of course, we want to hear truth. We need to hear truth, even if it's hard truth. And as a church, we want clear eyes. We want clear hearts to see and receive hard truth, even if it's unpopular, even if it's politically incorrect. Why? Because we know that the truth will set you free. And so we're not afraid of hard truth. And, and Judges has some hard truth for us. We see an example even in the text that we read this morning. Look at verse 11 of Judges chapter 2. And the people of Israel 
did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Verse 12, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after the other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Verse 13, they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Now to understand these verses, it helps for us to know a wee bit about the background to Baal worship. Baal was, amongst other things, the god of fertility. The fertility god. Now, of course, in this culture, fertility was the name of the game. For your crops, for your cattle, for your children, everything depended upon fertility. And the Canaanites had this view that fertility on, fertility on earth was dependent upon there being fertility in the heavens. And so Baal had a partner. If you look at verse 13 again, his partner was called Ashtaroth. That's a, a reference to his partner. And the Canaanites believed that if this heavenly couple were fertile, if this heavenly couple were sexually active in the heavens, then on earth there'd be fertility too. There'd be crops and there'd be cattle and there'd be children. Now, the Canaanites were not a passive group. They didn't just sit around hoping for the best. Listen to this section from one Old Testament commentator. The Canaanites practiced sacred prostitution as part of their worship. A Canaanite man, for instance, would go to a Baal shrine and have sex with one of the sacred prostitutes serving there. The man would fulfill Baal's role and the woman, Ashtaroth's, both of whom referenced in verse 13. The idea was that the activity of the worshipper and the sacred prostitute would encourage the divine couple, Mr. and Mrs. Baal, to do their thing and thus the rain, grain, wine and oil would flow again. Through this sacred prostitution it was possible to assist and encourage Baal in the sky. However, nothing would happen unless the fertility powers were properly worshipped. So against this background of of Baal worship, let's ask three questions about the Israelites. First of all, what do they do? What do the Israelites do? And let's just remind ourselves too of the scene here. Where have they just come from? Remember, they've just been redeemed from physical slavery in Egypt. And they've wandered in the wilderness and now they've been brought to the promised land where just miraculously and just incredibly they've been given victory and now the promised land has been assigned each to his own inheritance and God has been faithful to every single promise that he ever made to his people. And then here in the land they're confronted with the worship and what do they do? They dive right in. Off to the shrines they go to worship this God Baal. Why do they do it? Second question. Well, on one hand, there certainly seems to be a a certain sensual appeal to it. But on the other hand, having turned their back on their own God, they also want the things that they think this God will give them. They want crops. They want cattle. They want children. Thirdly, what's the result of this disobedience? Look at verses 14 and 15. We see nothing but disaster. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers, who did what? Plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Terrible distress. They turn their back on God. They worship these foreign idols. And the result is distress. Now, here's some hard truth for us. 
Because let's ask ourselves these, these same questions. We asked, what did Israel do? Well, let's ask, what, what have we done? As a people who have been redeemed from something far greater than physical slavery in Egypt, as a people who have been saved and redeemed from the eternal slavery of sin through the blood of Jesus, as a people who have had his love set upon us, and as a people who have been blessed beyond compare, well, one of the things we do is jump right back into the same old sins we needed to be saved from in the first place. And all of us know that's part of our story, personally, but also collectively. None of us would claim to have a life free from brokenness, life free from sin, a life free from regret. We jump right back into the sins that we needed to be saved from in the first place. Second question, why do we do it? Have you ever asked yourself that question? If you're a Christian this morning, why do you sin? You know part of the answer to that is because you want to. It's because we want to. Like the Israelites, sometimes because there's a sensual appeal to it, pornography or gossip that offers such fleeting pleasures. Sometimes, perhaps, because we want what we think the sin will give us. We long for importance or security, and so we we overwork. Or we long for meaning and purpose, and so we, we idolize our children. Hard truth for us is that Sometimes we sin because we want to sin. We like to think of ourselves as better than that. We like to think of ourselves as basically good people who've just made a few mistakes. But the Bible confronts us with a picture that is darker than that. Third question we asked of the Israelites. What's the result? What's the result of our sin? Surely as it was for them, so surely it is for us. Disaster. See, we might be tempted to laugh at the Israelites for thinking that having sex with a prostitute would guarantee a good crop. But I'm not sure it's any more fanciful than thinking that pornography is going to make you happy. It just results in dysfunction. I'm not sure it's any more fanciful than thinking that that gossip can make you truly glad. It just creates distrust in relationship. I'm not sure it's more, more, more fanciful than thinking that any amount of success can actually satisfy your soul. I'm not sure that's any more fanciful than thinking that you can validate your own existence by raising perfect children. That will just disappoint you and raise fearful legalists. The things we do result in disaster as surely as the things of their day. Proverbs warns in chapter 14, verse 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads where? Death. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. It's a big moment when you realize that living to please God will actually make you happier than any alternative. Hard truths that we need to reflect upon together. Hard truths, because we're not just here, we don't just read scripture in order to have our ears tickled. Hard truths that we want to wrestle with, because we know that the truth will set us free. And so that's why we're studying Judges. The entire Bible is helpful. Our day is like their day. It speaks hard truth that we need to hear. But fourth and finally, and perhaps most importantly, we're also going to study the book of Judges because the book of Judges is all about what? The gospel. The gospel. Now, is that a surprise to us? It's an Old Testament book. Are we surprised that it's all about the gospel? No, we're not surprised. 
Because every single book in the Bible is about the gospel. Every single sentence and every single syllable is about the same thing, driving us ultimately and focally toward Jesus Christ. And this book isn't just a book to give us warnings, it's also a book to give us grace. And this is a good thing for people like us. (laughs) Why? Because, of course, we want to be challenged in our faith. That's good. We want to be challenged. But we desperately need something more than moral instruction. We are a people who, who are in desperate need of, of more than just teaching. And so we understand that, yes, we need some hard truth, but we also need the grace of the gospel. And the way spiritual health works, you understand this, right? The, the way spiritual health works isn't by balancing out law and gospel. What do I mean? I mean, we don't say, well, this fall, we thought about Jesus. So now, seven weeks of legalism, <laughs> and that will be spiritual health. We've got gospel, we've got law, and now, you know, that will sort of be a, like all things in moderation, you know? That's not how it works. Everything comes through the gospel. And our obedience in Christ, our ability to follow his commands, is fueled by, powered by, enabled by the gospel. And so that's what the book of Judges is about. Consider this quote from one preacher. He says, the Bible, and then refers specifically to the book of Judges, is not full of inspirational stories. Why? Because the Bible, unlike the books that the other religions are based on, It's not about following moral examples. It is about a God of mercy and long-suffering who continually works in us and through us despite our constant resistance to his purposes. Ultimately, there's only one hero in this book and he is divine. He's the ultimate judge. We read this part of scripture as a historical recounting of how God works to rescue his undeserving people through and out of the mess of their sin. Then this book comes alive to us in our heads and hearts and speaks to us in our lives and situations today. And again, lest you think we're making this up, let's look at this passage that we've read and see how it is indeed all about the gospel. What, what did we say? We said in verses 1 through 13, we read of the spectacular unfaithfulness of God's people. Then in verses 14 and 15, we saw the terrible consequences that, that befell the people for their disobedience. And so what do we then expect God to say in verse 16? You know, you're getting what you deserve, perhaps. Instead, what do we read? read look, verse 16, look at it with me. The people rebel. They're punished. Then the Lord, verse 16, raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. See what happens? Verses 1 through 13, 11 through 13, disobedience. Verses 14 and 15, disaster. Verse 16, God's response, grace. It's the gospel flow that God responds to his rebellious people by giving them grace. To continue the previous quote, I love this quote. God relentlessly offers his grace to people who don't deserve it, don't seek it, and aren't grateful for it, even after they've been saved by it. My good news. God gives us grace that we don't deserve it, seek it, and aren't grateful for it. We're studying Judges because the book of Judges 
is about Jesus. And it drives us to him, the ultimate judge, and speaks words of grace that enable us to follow him. Why are we studying? The entire Bible is useful. Our day is like their day. It has hard truth we need to hear, and most of all, because it's about the gospel. Should you come back next week? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. <laughs> but you should definitely study the book of Judges. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we thank you for your provision that in the Bible you have given us a complete and sufficient revelation from you that everything we need for faith and practice is is contained in its pages. And Lord, we especially thank you for this section, the book of Judges, written in a day that was so like our own. And to this day, speaking hard truths that, that we need to hear, but also speaking words of grace. So, Father, we ask that you would bless us in these coming weeks. Would we um, not just study, not just learn, but encounter you in these pages, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.